Welcome to the Rockonomics Podcast, episode 25. I'm your host, Dill, and we've got a really entertaining episode this week with a great musician and master storyteller, John Leamy. John is best known as the longtime and current member of the influential band Masters of Reality, but it was his start with the post-hardcore band Surgery out of New York City that started his surreal path through the business. From two near-death touring incidents to being replaced by legendary drummer Ginger Baker, John recalls these experiences and more with great attention to detail and humor. This has quickly become a favorite episode of mine, so let's get right to it. But it's funny, you know, when I first reached out to you, I was all in, it was like Masters of Reality, that's what I, you know, remembered you from, you know, all right. the way back from you doing the, the album artwork, but as soon as I went to Google, this whole other... <laughs> So the segment or you know presented itself that seemed really interesting, and I so that's surgery I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. Now that started at SU. Did is that right? Yeah. Surgery was a, a bunch of guys I met strangely through my fraternity, Fiji. Well, okay. I was a Fiji. Okay. Um, and everybody was in Fiji except for the bass player John LaChapelle. But he practically lived at the house, so he may as well have, have been. And, you know, Fiji was not... Uh, we all like to think that it was not a typical... It was the fraternity. unfrat. It was the unfrat, yeah. It was the anti-hero frat. We were ranked academically last. We got le- I got a letter saying, never come back. Um, <laughs> we blew up our homecoming float. We would all take acid together. You know, it was... So... Um, we formed basically for a Halloween party, I think. And, you know, I was the only person in the band who had ever played an instrument before. Um, you know, I grew up playing the drums in whatever band I could be in, whether it was a school or orchestras or pit bands. And uh, they just wanted to have a band for a party. Right. So I did the Halloween show with them. And uh, I was in another band at Syracuse at the time called B Solution, which... Uh, was far better and had guys who had played instruments before and I was really into. Um, so I did this show with surgery and uh, and then left and they got another guy to play drums. Uh, and while I was gone, uh, one of the guys at Fiji, his name is Scott Kleber, um, broke his leg skiing and holed himself up in a room for a couple of months with his roommate's guitar. And when he came out, he was a smoking guitar player. He was just the best, like, natural lead guitarist I'd, I'd heard maybe ever. I just couldn't believe how, how good he was. Yeah, it was bananas. He came out and was smoking, and uh, he, he joined, and so I kind of rejoined. And Sean uh, McDonald, who passed away in 1995, um, he, was, he was the catalyst that turned it into anything at all. He was a guy, every band, every successful band needs one guy who is going to make the calls, book the gigs, know the people uh, necessary to further the cause of your organization. And Sean was that guy. So Sean arranged for us to make our first recordings um, during summer break um, with Kramer. Um, 
at his studio, Noise New York, which isn't too far from here, actually. He ran a label called Shimmy Disc and had a band called Bong Water. And it was kind of an esoteric, cool, artsy, hipster label that put out records by Ann Magnuson. And uh, it was just kind of a, a really cool, art-forward, hip New York label. Mm-hmm. And uh, we recorded, uh, I guess, an EP there. And um, a label that was just forming out of Long Island put it out called Circuit Records. And Sean was smart enough to know the people he needed to cultivate in the New York music scene and and move to New York with kind of a plan as to how we would do it and who we would interact with and how we would get on the bills we needed to. Now, were you still at Were you left behind at any point at school? Like, it sounded like... I mean, just by, you know, my crack research, it looked like they were in New York before we graduated. Maybe that's wrong. Well, uh, first, I never graduated Syracuse. Uh, I think I'm three credits short. Um, (laughs) Your picture's in my yearbook. Is it? (laughs) Yeah, it is. That's really weird. (laughs) You know, when I moved to the suburbs 25 years later, my neighbor was a guy who lived in Flint Hall and was there really? when I was there and was in the arts also. And uh, and we were talking about Syracuse. He says, yeah, I never graduated. And he went out to his garage and pulled out his graduation program, and my name was in it. So I never graduated, but apparently I could have uh, hooked my parents up with the whole thing that they never got because <laughs> I'm, yeah, you know, I'm three credits short and I owe a library book, and sorry, it's just not happening, Mom and Dad. <laughs> And, you know, I was a painting major. Yeah. I mean, after freshman core, you had to decide what you wanted to do. And I picked advertising design, and I made it like a week. Or I so. didn't realize that, because I remember you were painting. Yeah, I, I picked advertising design because I didn't know what else to do at the end of freshman year. And I figured, well, maybe I'll be able to make a living. But I didn't make it in that. I just uh, remember they asked us to go out and buy um, a set of 50 gray magic markers. And I went right outside and got on the phone and called my dad. I said, Dad, I'm not, I'm not buying these fucking markers. There's no way. It was like I had to tell him I needed to be myself and follow my muse and God damn it, I'm an artist and all this stuff. And it was a long silence on the other end of the phone. And he took it pretty well, um, listening to his son explain that he was going to pursue a degree that was literally worthless. Uh, but that's... Yeah. No one has ever asked me for a degree. <laughs> so uh, we all left at the same time. Okay. <clears throat> um, we all moved to Alphabet City together, shared an apartment on 2nd Street between B and C. I got a job out of the Village Voice. We didn't have a phone, so every Wednesday morning I'd get up real early and get the Village Voice at like 5 a.m. and go down to the payphone at the end of the street with a cup full of quarters and start making calls. And uh, I got my first job working for a silkscreen company and. In uh, little Korea, in the twenties, cool. and sounds uh, cool. Was it cool? It was cool. You know, I would make acetate separations and designs for these real old sort of classic ragmen named Irving and Maury, and you know, they'd be like, "Today, I, I need a cute rabbit surfing," you know, and I would get out the Grumbacher and you know, and had an easel and a thing, and we would make separations, everything from maternity wear to Disney knockoffs to whatever. And um, that was my first gig. I made 300 bucks a week, and I thought I had struck gold. (laughs) And um, we lived together in this, in this, the first wave of gentrification. You know, on Second Street, 
it was, you know, real old Lower East Side Street, and this one sort of newish apartment building had gone up next to the firehouse. And we moved in there and um, had no furniture to speak of. You know, it was like a college dorm room, basically, with four guys stuffed in it. And uh, But around the corner was our practice space that we shared with um, uh, the unsane cop shoot cop, um, Pussy Galore, who were established, cool New York bands. And all of a sudden, we were sharing space with the kind of bands that we wanted to be. Um, and rubbing, you know, rubbing shoulders with John Spencer and Julie K. Fritz. And Sean, our lead singer, ended up becoming the boyfriend of Julie K. Fritz and living with her. And that sort of helped our social cause and, and visibility tremendously. And then all of a sudden, Sonic Youth knew who we were, and, and uh, we started started getting on cool bills and doing stuff. Were you gigging at, um, I'm trying to think way back then, I mean, obviously CBs, but like, was Mercury around back then, or Luna Lounge? Or uh, Luna Lounge, or? I don't think ever was. I mean, New York was really different. CBs, we played, probably we played more shows at CBs than anywhere in, in America, uh, or during the history of the band. Um, Sometimes I think we would play, uh, we may have played Brownies once or twice. Right. Um, the old Ritz, I think. Um, Mercury Lounge. Uh, there was a place called the Black Cat, I think. Yeah, I remember that. Played that. Um, but, you know, in New York, we generally played CBGB. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we tried not to do those gigs too often or to sort of play too much in New York so that just became no big deal yep. for us to play. But we toured like crazy. We toured, we'd go out on the road for 15 weeks at a time. How did that come about? That was just, again, was that Sean well, taking... Well, know, once we put out that, that first EP, Soul Eater, um, we attracted the attention of a guy named Tom Hazelmeyer out of Minneapolis who ran a, a, a label called Amphetamine Reptile, Amrep. Okay which uh, was pretty new. And Tom uh, was a former Marine, turned, uh, you know, former Marine and, and awesome guitarist who had a band called Halo Flies that we really liked. And he um, got in touch with Sean and talked about putting out first a single and, and a, then a record. So we ended up signing to AMREP. And through AMREP, we uh, gained a booking agent, a guy named Peter Davis, who was closely affiliated with AMREP and Tom, old friend of Tom's. And his, uh, his company was called Creature Booking, and they booked all the AMREP bands and bands like the Melvins and right. uh, Guar and uh, just really a lot of, lot of cool bands. So we started touring out of uh, basically with our home base being Minneapolis or being booked out of Minneapolis uh, with Creature. Our first tour was with the Cows. We went out with Helios Creed. Um, we did a tour with Melvins and Guar, uh, but we would go out for unbelievably long periods of time in a, in a van, driving ourselves and sleeping on floors for right. you know fifteen weeks. But as a young twenties, that was probably living the dream, or was it? Was it? A yeah, was no. It a I mean, it was living the dream. It was. It was. It was super awesome, but it was also kind of punishing. It really. Um, Touring like that is is definitely a younger man's game. Yeah. You know, your body needs to be able to withstand that kind of abuse because <clears throat> we were drinking 
and doing drugs every night and uh, staying up super late every night and driving 10 hours a day. And uh, one of the hardest things to learn how to do is sleep in a van um, with somebody cranking motorhead in it (laughs) in the cold. And you know that the guy driving is drunk. (laughs) And if you don't sleep, you're screwed because it's your turn to drive next. Right. And um, after the first two weeks of doing that, you're really just fucked. Your your body is shutting down. You feel like you have organ failure. And then you manage to sort of molt into a new person. You kind of gain sea legs and uh, you sort of shed your previous physical being for the duration of the tour. And it gets much easier after two or three weeks. That's interesting. And, and then readjusting back to normal civilian life afterwards is... Um, appropriately difficult right i mean if you come off it's like a tour of duty if you come off that you sleep for like four days straight yeah you know and and the sleep that we did get was either in the van and one guy usually slept in the van just to guard it um or uh if you manage to hook up with some punk rock girl or you know a lot of times we would sleep um at the houses of people who came to see the show Mm -hmm. and um more often than not, they wanted to party. You know, it wasn't like we were going to go and they gave us cookies and tea when we went to bed. So usually you'd you'd be bone tired and wearing soaking wet clothes, and you go to someone's house and they just wanted to play raw power real loud, and, um, and you wake up with kitty litter on your face the next morning. Um, and then eventually we got enough um, better guarantees to where we could get one hotel room. And we'd cram us all in one, and ultimately we graduated to two. But we always shared beds, you know. Yeah. I would share a bed with the bass player. I was the biggest, he was the smallest. And um, Is there any, is this a fact or fiction? Did you guys have a, like, a old UPS truck that you fashioned as a tour vehicle? Uh, sort of. Uh, surgery had a couple notable vehicles. <laughs> the, first, the first truck that we had... I mean, we did our first tours in a Ford Econoline, or a, maybe it was a Chevy Tradesman, you know, just a classic band. But after our first record came out, our bass player's dad, uh, John LaChapelle's dad, who was called Big Daddy Don LaChapelle, King of South Dakota, <laughs> ran a bunch of Perkins in South Dakota, YMCA weightlifting champ, just a real dynamo of a man. He surprised us with a gift of a 1978 Dodge Ambulance that he had... He had customized to make it longer and wider, and he had it painted black and had our logo and the label name painted on it. So, so it was a classic, come on outside, boys, and, and there it was. And we opened up the door, and all the stirrups and stuff are still in it, and, and there was a box in there, and we opened it up, and the box was full of T-shirts that had the name of the band and a picture of the band on it. Like it came equipped with its own merch. And and that was that was that was amazing. That was the best thing ever. It was a real it was a real presence, you know, rolling around in a black ambulance with working lights. That van was destroyed in Madison, Wisconsin in a horrifying you know, we had a lot of near death experiences on the road and uh, the first real significant one involved that ambulance. And it was uh, at a club called OK's Corral in Madison, Wisconsin, in March of, you know, 89 or 90, maybe 91. Um, we had just, I don't know how much time you got, 
but this is a good surgery story. Oh, we got we got nothing but time. I okay, want, I just want to make sure the things going. So this goes back to uh, drums. Um, I started to play the drums in the sixth grade uh, when the local junior high school band, stage band, jazz band, came to my grade school and did a, an assembly performance for all the kids sitting on the gym floor. And uh, the drummer took a solo. His name was Brad Miller, and he was great. He was really good. And it was the kind of solo where everybody gets up and leaves the stage, fanning disgust that the drummer's going to do his thing. And he fucking killed it. He was amazing, but he had this beautiful white drum set. And I, I became fixated on these drums, like I was having a vision. And when it was over, I went back to class, and I got a hall pass to go to the bathroom. And I went back to the auditorium, and the drums were still set up in the dark on the stage. And I sat down at them and decided I was going to play the drums. And so I did. And I followed in that guy's footsteps and played in every band, and I tried to be like him. And what I really wanted to do was get this drum set from him. And he knew that. And there were these Heyman drums, which are uh, somewhat rare English drums that were only made for like eight years um, and before they were discontinued. They, were, they looked kind of like DWs or Camcos, big round turret lugs. Mm -hmm. Really beautiful. Um, and I hounded him forever. And... Um, he wouldn't sell them to me. Finally, I'm out of college. I'm in surgery. We're touring and stuff, you know. And he calls me and he says, hey, I'm finally ready to sell that drum set. I'm like, shit, amazing. So I go and he wants 500 bucks for him. And I don't have 500 bucks, but my roommate lends me the money and then buys my Slingerland drums from me for 350 even though he didn't play drums, which is pretty good friend. But I didn't have cases for all of them. I couldn't afford it. So I took them on this tour and I was doing the most insane custom pack after every show like uh, little pieces of foam and sleeping bags I had a system everything had to go be babied into its exact nook for us to travel in the ambulance <laughs> and so we're leaving the show at like 2am and Sean um, drops the rack tom on the sidewalk and it rolls a few feet and you know we've been out for probably a month and I'm fried and I snap and I I lose my shit and I say, I can't get in the van with Sean right now because I'm just going to freaking kill him after babying these things around America. I need to go in and drink like 10 beers. So we all go back inside and we get about 10 feet in the front door and the whole front of the club exploded. Like, like it was literally sheared off by an 18-wheeler going about 75 miles an hour. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the guy... All of a sudden, where the front of the club was, and we were probably about 15 feet from the door, was just a gaping Terminator-style hole with smoke and bricks falling. And we run outside, and our van, our ambulance, is now half in the lake across the street that Otis Redding's plane crashed in. Um, there's a dead kid who had just left our show. Oh, my gosh. A Chevy Malibu got crushed about the size of, you know, a milk crate. Um, drums are splintered all over the street. Um... And the truck has jackknifed and gone over on its side, and there's power lines doing this and fuel spewing out like Armageddon. And we jumped up on the cab of the truck and pulled the guy out. He didn't have a scratch on him. He was sleeping like a baby, and he actually had a peg leg, like, like not a prosthetic, like leg-shaped leg. Like it was like a, yeah, like a Long John Silver peg. His name was Cecil Shempert. I'll never forget this. The headline in the paper the next day was, I was pretty drunk. And he had, he had, his, he had his prison shirt on that had no sleeves, and one side was an upside-down cross, and the other side was a swastika. 
and he had just gotten out of prison for killing his own father in 1978. And um, one of his prison buddies gave him a job driving a load of furniture from Carolina, and he got drunk and fell asleep. So these drums um, that inspired me to play and made me want to play uh, ended up saving all of our lives, if you think about it. Like, if Sean hadn't dropped that drum, we would have been in there lighting cigarettes and finding the right cassette, and we would have been killed. I mean, the impact was huge. Um, That's crazy. Yeah, totally, totally crazy. So so far, so far what we've gone over, it's a... It's a movie waiting to happen. You yeah. got to write this stuff down. Um, you know, it sounds like a it's, John Waters might be able so to do we spent, That was the end of the tour. We spent the next two weeks um, trying to find a lawyer. And, you know, the court date wasn't for like another year and a half. Um, Smashing Pumpkins were in town making their first record with Butch Big. And so there was a bar in Madison. I can't remember the name of it. But Jimmy Chamberlain, the drummer for Smashing Pumpkins, was tending bar there while they were making the record. And he took us in and just fed us alcohol for free for two weeks, which was a pretty solid thing to do. Um, long story short, or shorter anyway, we went to court. The insurance company, um, you know, they, they didn't want to pay out on the value of our gear. I had a drum expert come in and testify as to the rareness of these drums. So they gave me five grand for the drums and all the pieces back. And so and I, so I took all the pieces back and stored them. And um, the, the floor time had an exact shape of a Marshall head that went straight through it. And um, every time I go to Europe on tour in years after that, um, whatever town we were in, I'd go into the music store and say, you don't have parts for Heyman drums, do you? And they would laugh if they even knew what they were. But yeah. one guy in Hamburg laughed and pulled out a whole box of them. How funny. Yeah. And he gave them to me. He was like, wow, clearly these are for you. So I took them home. And it just last year I finally uh, stripped that kit down and rebuilt it. No way. And re- refinished it, rewrapped it. Oh, so cool. now it's probably the nicest it's ever been. But um, that was the ambulance. That was the end of the oh. ambulance that we had. We did have a truck after that that was... I think it was a bread truck. It may have been a UPS truck, but it was a huge panel truck that we tripped out. and We had bumpers made from uh, pieces of the Brooklyn Bridge. And uh, that tour, we towed a U-Haul that had two motorcycles and four surfboards in it as well. (laughs) And that truck met disaster, too. Rear left axle pulled out in Dallas, going about 60. This, This is a good one. I, the, the other stuff happened, but this is the other really good one. We're, we've just stopped in Dallas at the airport to pick up uh, a filmmaker from England who was traveling with our, our, our buddy and another fraternity brother from Syracuse, a guy named Eric Strzok, who was a filmmaker. And he was like, oh, yeah, my buddy Will want, wants to make a documentary of the tour. He's flying over from England. And he came with his film cameras, and we picked him up at the airport. And they got in Eric's Monte Carlo and followed us on the road. And we're on the Dallas freeway. And I'm asleep in the loft, and it's, it's in the summer, so the window was open, and I woke up because my hair was on fire. And my hair was on fire because the whole rear left axle from the pumpkin over had pulled out of the truck, and the, the truck had gone down onto what was left of the axle, and it was sparking. Right. And the sparks were whipping up uh. the side and into the window and into my hair. So I wake up, and I see the truck tires, two big ones, still on the axle, bouncing through traffic and over the median, and the hydraulics are gone, there's no, you know, and 
Darren, vigilant, the guy who's driving, just trying to not wreck. And um, right behind us is the Monte Carlo with this guy we just picked up at the airport who's watching all of this. And uh, he literally crapped his pants. <laughs> like, did you get it? <laughs> he, he did. We had to pull over so that he could change his pants. No, but I was going to say, I wish he was rolling. He wasn't. He wasn't. Uh, but that tour was long and he captured a lot of stuff, um, which we never saw because Eric died at Christmas um, and he blamed us for it, sadly. Eric died of a, a heroin overdose. Um, oh, he blamed, he blamed you guys. He blamed us. That tour. Yeah. So we never saw the film. There is somewhere weeks of insane footage. That'd be interesting. Jeez. Yeah. But that was our other big vehicle. Later in that tour, we lost the engine in Mitchell, South Dakota. So you guys, I mean, on these tours, are you living hand to mouth? I mean, yeah. You're not walking away with no. a couple grand in your pocket, are you? Or are no, you? no. Nobody ever made any money on those tours to come home with. Uh, basically, we would make the money at a gig, and it would pay for gas and Texaco burritos to get to the next gig. Right. And uh, if we maybe we'd sell a couple T-shirts or something, but we weren't businessmen. In that sense, right? We were well, just, I mean, no one is at that age, but no. So you also mentioned, um, and I know you you guys went to Europe a number of times. Yeah, back then, How, what was? Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, um, that was amazing. Um, touring Europe for an American band is is uh, is kind of like Fantasy Island because in America the drives are super long, the pay is crappy and you get no respect from anybody certainly no food or, or money or hospitality um, in Europe the drives are short you don't have to be um, famous in any way um, certainly in America for them to treat you like you're cool or special or somebody worth seeing so um, you go to play a show in Europe even if you're nobodies there's like lunch meat's laid out and maybe somebody has cooked a nice meal and there's a bunch of attentive German kids who were excited to see an American band. So it right. was fucking great. It was unreal. And our first uh, European tour was an AMREP package tour called the Ugly American Overkill Tour. <laughs> it was us, Helmet, um, God Tar, Tar, yeah, and Halo of Flies, <clears throat> all in one bus. Uh, and it was freaking great. It was amazing. We did a peel session for the BBC, and um, it was incredible. I think we went back at least maybe three more times. Um, and and it always be like three week, four week jaunts. Or? Yeah, you know, uh, they were nowhere near as long as the American tours because America is so much bigger and harder to to cover. Mm. Um, but uh, they were infinitely more pleasurable, really, in terms of the rigor. Uh, you know, your body had to undergo, and uh, it's just cool being in Europe. Right. Um, it's much cooler than being at the strip mall. <laughs> well, I found uh, there's a Phoenix New Times article that said while you guys were in Germany, four four of you there was four hospital visits. Yeah, two for the flu, which is seems <laughs> yeah, that never happened. Uh, two for the flu and two for stitches. Yeah, that was a tour we did with the Unsane. Uh, who we shared a practice space with. Now, I want to ask you about the Unsane. Did Unsane have an album cover with a, uh, like a, a guy on the train track? Yeah. With a severed head? Yeah. I remember seeing that. They're all like that. St. Mark's CD. Yeah, most of the Unsane <laughs> album art, is, it was, was, at least at that point, was real gory. That was um, like... They were... Uh, that was... Uh, I don't know if you've listened to the Unsane, but 
awesome, powerful, dark band. Um, and they had a bass player at the time named Pete Shore, who was, uh, they had all met at Sarah Lawrence, um, art students from Sarah Lawrence. Right. And Pete Shore, I think, had done a bunch of work with the filmmaker Richard Kern, um, who was a real, you know, darling, artsy filmmaker uh, in New York in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, working with Lydia Lunch and um, making these really just fantastically wild, um, kind of surreal uh, New York films that were sort of portraits. I mean, there was one called Fingered, starring Lydia Lunch, um, that Pete did the special effects for, where a guy got, I think, a Cuban necktie got his throat cut and his windpipe pulled out and Pete did this. So they were into gore, you know, yeah. Pete was into that stuff. So, yeah, um, we did a tour with them and as it happened, um, two hospital visits, I remember. The other two for flu, I think, was made up, but they did happen within 24 hours. First, um, John LaChapelle, our bass player, uh, cut his finger First or second, he cut his finger really badly trying to open a beer by banging the first beer on top of the right. second one. Yeah. Uh, it's a party trick I've never seen anyone really do. But he did it and, and really almost cut his thumb or something off. So that was that. Um, Pichor from The Unsane played bass for us for the rest of the tour. But later that night or earlier that night, same guy, John LaChapelle, had thrown a beer bottle at somebody and it had missed them and hit our tour manager's girlfriend in the face and uh, cut her face open pretty badly, right. which is a bad scene yeah. um, for sure. Uh, so when when the second visit happened, the hospital staff were understandably incredulous. Um, yeah, we were, you know, surgery was, uh, we were guys that, met because we were friends and we liked to have fun together and the band part was just an extension of the first part yeah. and uh, the music was was just what came out of that yeah free song what do you I mean it, how do you describe it I, I noticed it was like I mean post hardcore like scum rock is that I mean well that, you know it's been described a lot of ways when you read when I read what people have written about surgery uh it's usually fairly accurate. I mean, we got lumped into noise rock, and we ended up on a label called, you know, Noise or Amrep's sub, you know, title was Noise. Mm -hmm. But we didn't sound anything like any of the other bands. You know, we were far more rock. Um, we were almost, there were parts of us that sounded like rock's era, Aerosmith. Mm -hmm. uh, we were definitely more stonesy. Uh, there was a little bit of southern rock chugle in the way we played. We were kind of like the Gun Club meets Motorhead. Meets the Stones, you know. Whereas everybody else was very much more post-rock, um, post-punk. Um, we were more influenced by the Stones than we were by, you know, Killing Joke or Einstein's Neubauten or any sort of artsy right. things. We were sort of unashamedly guitar rock band. Um, then, you know, we loved the Stones mostly, but what we did didn't sound like Stones. And when we would do interviews and people asked me this question, I would always say that we, I always felt like we made stupid music for smart people. Mm -hmm. You know, we weren't dummies, but we, we kind of acted like it. I mean, we kind of were, but um, we didn't want to write music that had anything to do with 
a political stance or any overt social commentary. Usually we were writing about girls or drugs or booze or food or cars or the classics. Right. You know. So it wasn't, wasn't that complex a thing. So let's move on to, not move on, but I think the next phase of surgery was you guys did get major, you got kind of caught up in the whole yeah. Nirvana helmet, yep. you know, frenzy of sign those bands and everyone around them. So well, tell me about that era and, you know, what was going on. Well, uh, so obviously after Nirvana got huge, and it's funny, Nirvana, we played on a bill with Nirvana um, at the Pyramid Club during the New Music, CMJ New Music Seminar, I think it was. I didn't even watch it because um, I think I was outside smoking cigarettes. I didn't pay any attention. But they got signed that night. And Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth was instrumental in them getting signed. Um, she had the ear of whoever it was at Geffen, maybe Danny Goldberg. Um, and she was really tight with Sean's girlfriend, Julie, who was the uh, who played in Pussy Galore. Um, then Helmet left. AMREP and uh, and exploded, and so now the music business and the the major label world was kind of rent asunder. Nobody knew what was going on. You right. know, all of a sudden, all the poisons and warrants in the world were, you know, and nobody wanted to get caught looking. You know, nobody knew what was good or bad or what was saleable or wasn't. You know, right. the, the standards for what was a viable profit making band had kind of been destroyed in like a couple months. Um, and there was an A&R guy for Atlantic that lived in New York, a guy named Al Smith, who uh, would come to see our shows. And even from the very beginning, when we were on small labels, we had a good lawyer named Richard Grable, who approached us after one of our first or second shows in New York and introduced himself and said, I want to be your lawyer. And he worked for the biggest entertainment law firm in, uh, in America, if not the world. Um, and so he was willing to sort of represent our interests and try to help us do deals if, if they were uh, in the offing. And all of a sudden, it was possible that a band like us could, uh, could get signed to a major. And of course, at that time, say 1993, uh, it was incredibly unfashionable <clears throat> within the circles that we moved in to sign to a major label. Right. It was the last thing you would want to I do. mean, but they were, like you said, it was Sonic Youth, <clears throat> you know. Sonic Youth were kind of in and a position. Galore, didn't they? I don't know if they ever went major, um, but those bands were, um, you know, I think they'd achieved the level of critical success far outstripping anything we had done. Right. right? We weren't like critics, darlings, or mm -hmm. anything, and we're a wildly inconsistent live band. You know, we would either be amazing uh, or we would be horrifyingly bad because we we're fucked up or or uh, any number of things. Right. Um, so, and Helmet, you know, was an incredible, uh, consistently great band, right? They were, I don't know if you ever saw them live, but the first time we ever saw them live was on that Ugly American Overkill tour. And New York had this, this thing at the time where the scenes were sort of segmented and you could be, you know, within a couple blocks of a great band that was in a different scene than you and have no idea. Mm -hmm. um, and some bands in the New York scene we didn't really get to know about or even hear until we ended up on tour with them and discovered that we lived five blocks from each other. That was true of Helmet. It was true of Quicksand we went on tour with. I didn't know Quicksand. They were in a different sort of more straight-edge post-hardcore scene than us. Um, 
surgery uh, was willing to, I think, among all these bands that were in our world, willing to entertain the idea with gusto of trying to be big. You know, maybe because we're more overtly rock, more overtly right. willing to, you know, be like the Stones or, or play more like Aerosmith. That fit right in to our thing. Like, if we're going to do this, why don't we try to reach as many people as possible? And if our whole thing is sort of the loose decadence of being in a rock band, then why don't we try to loose it up? Right. You know? Also, I mean, if you're four or five years in already and you're talking how grueling it is being at the stage you're at. Yeah. I would take shit from kids on the road about selling out and I would open the van door and I'd say, well, you want to get in and go for a couple of weeks? Come on. Let's see what you got. You know, yeah, so for me, and I was easily within the band the most, um, I don't want to say straight laced, but I wasn't, I wasn't as, I wasn't as unhinged uh, as everybody else, to my thinking. And so I, and I had grown up, you know, studying music and like taking lessons and like wanting to be good at my instrument. It wasn't a thing that was born of my desire to get laid, you know. Yeah. Um, maybe it was initially, who knows, but I had put a lot more time in, so I was trying to take it seriously if I was really going to be doing this for any extended period of time. <clears throat> so yeah, there was a culture within the band, um, so let's try to do it, and if we can get signed to a major, then we're doing what seems to be the logical progression for a band trying to make it in the world. <clears throat> so we got we got signed to Atlantic, to a, a seven-album deal. Holy shit. Well, that's... I mean, that's... <clears throat> that's that's pretty Those typical. The options or yeah, a seven album deal is pretty typical for a major <clears throat> label. Um, usually, that comes with the second half of the sentence, which is a one or two firm, which means they have the option for right. seven of your records. Right. They don't have to release or finance seven. Um, one or two firm means they have to put out one or two. Right? We managed to get the difficult to get two firm deal um, thanks to our cool lawyer. Um, but yeah, we signed to Atlantic, and uh, it was awesome, you know, because until until your record comes out on a major, in that sort of honeymoon period between signing and the the cash register tallying or not, you're kind of anybody's guess as to whether or not you're going to be the next Led Zeppelin or not. Right. <clears throat> so everybody was super nice, and we got our run of Atlantic Records and whatever merch or, you know, cassettes or shit that we wanted it was it's pretty awesome the day your record comes out they start keeping score and uh and your status commensurately rises or lowers depending on the score and um and our score was low it was pretty funny um al smith the great guy who signed us uh, he sort of had a collapse and went into rehab the day our record came out which was not like, great. Dude, come on. Not great for, you know, <clears throat> we learned that. They're champion. When you're on an indie label, um, it's kind of like a little cottage industry. You know, it's like you and your buddies and maybe the guy at the label or the guy who prints the shirts or the booking agent. There's like 10 people in the chain and everybody can do their job and, uh, and you can achieve the modest but expected success of, of that scenario. In a major label, the cottage industry is much bigger and there are way more people in the chain that have to press the button at the right time to make it work properly. Um, And we made a record in LA with a guy named Garth, a Canadian man uh, whose father had been a famous producer, Jack Richardson, who'd done uh, Guess Who and I think some 
maybe some Peter Gabriel stuff. So we made a major label record that cost, you know, a couple hundred grand. Our previous record, it cost three grand, maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't better than our other ones. It was fraught with sort of the tension that uh, comes from pressure, know, pressure from right. a major label and being in a different environment with a guy who I don't think was super into us. And by that point, the band was sort of beginning to dissolve from within just because of um, drugs, you know. Everybody was was doing heroin, except for me, really. So I had this sort of Hobson's choice. By the time we got to signing to a major label, the band was kind of not as viable as I would have hoped as a musical entity. Um, And I was like, well, should I not do this on the principle of it not being super straight or not straight but together right <clears throat> or should I just uh, take the ride you know and I chose to take the ride and I'm glad I did um, now I'm curious about the timeline I mean, unfortunately I know you guys you know it, you know Sean passed away that was seemingly the end of the band but did you guys so you guys released the album did you get to do a major tour behind it or what's uh, the, we released the album I guess in 94. Uh, we recorded it in 93, released it in 94, maybe 95. We didn't. The record hadn't been out for very long when Sean died. Um, we may have done, you know, some dates, but I don't think we did a major tour. Um, and Sean died pretty shortly after the record came out. He had a uh, an asthma attack. Sean was asthmatic, and uh, he had an asthma attack in uh, Fort Greene. And it was just after Christmas, I remember, because I came, I came home... Uh, I came from, I think, probably Charlotte, and came back to the city, and Sean had uh, been taken to the hospital, and uh, was in a coma, and brain dead. Well, yeah, so he died within a week or so. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, you know, and Atlantic made some noise about getting another singer, and, you know, Pearl Jam had gotten a different singer, and, you know, and we were like, no. You know, this band... That band was really about those four guys, right. and uh, we were convinced, rightly, I think, that it just, if the whole purpose was predicated on us having fun, which was really our guiding principle, we're going to have fun, and if this isn't fun, we're not going to do it, and let's see how much fun we can have and how far we can take the fun, but when it's not fun, we're not doing it, and it, it had ceased to be fun, for sure. So that was that for surgery. Now... Obviously, we, we talked about Masters of Reality. You, you've known Masters of Reality back since school. Yeah. I mean, we went to school in the late 80s. Yeah. They started, I read, they started like 81 or early yeah. 80s. How did you, how did you know that? Uh, I met uh, Chris Goss from Masters of Reality through my friend Joe Cauley, who I was in a band with, uh, B-Solution, that I mentioned earlier. I was in this band with guys who were a couple of years older than me at Syracuse. Uh, film students, and uh, they knew Masters of Reality, uh, who were a local band that would play the, the Lost Horizon, and they had been, um, I think the, the first part of Masters, or the first couple of years, um, they were two guys, two, three guys with a drum machine. They didn't have a drummer in the beginning. And Joe had become friends with Chris, and early on in B-Solutions, or my time at B-Solution, he took me over to Chris's apartment to meet him, and uh, we hung out and listened to music. And uh, that's how I initially 
got to know them. I went to see them live maybe a month later at the Lost Horizon, and uh, they had a drummer, and they were amazing. They were, to me, like the best band I'd ever seen in my life. I couldn't believe that I was seeing this band uh, in a, a bar on Erie Boulevard with a pole coming up out of the <laughs> stage. Um, but I became instantly a gigantic fan. And it wasn't that long after that that uh, they got signed by Rick Rubin to... Um, the Deaf American at the time? Yeah. He, Rick Rubin had just, I think, dissolved his partnership uh, with Def Jam with um, Russell Simmons right. and was starting Deaf American. Mm -hmm. So it was pretty much a brand new thing. And he had signed Masters of Reality uh, based on the strength of a demo tape that they recorded state and seeing him I guess in the city a couple times so when that happened I was excited and um, I pitched them on the idea of me painting their album cover because I just wanted to be involved I thought it was just so this is the coolest band I, I want to be a part of this so uh, so I pitched the idea and uh, mm -hmm. go for it so I did I painted the album cover um, that was a gatefold too wasn't it it was uh, I painted it during spring break when you're a college and it was cool. Yeah, it was very cool. Was yeah. it oil? <laughs> it was oil, yeah. Um, and so that kind of, that you know, that was the beginnings of, uh, well, not, you know, that was the beginning of my relationship with Masters and with Chris. Um, that record jacket went on to become, I guess, you know, closely associated with the band. And uh, it was a cool thing to have done. Yeah, very cool. Um, so... Um, before surgery, long before surgery ended, there was a period where I joined Masters of Reality, where I left surgery. Okay, I, it's funny because I remember, I distinctly remember, and maybe I'm wrong, but I remember picking up a, a Billboard magazine, and I wanted to ask you about the whole Ginger Baker yeah. thing, because I, I thought it was, and I, I don't know, I don't know, I, you had another band surgery, but it was, you were there, and he was after you. Well, he was. Uh, I just couldn't make the timeline. And then I was going to make him. the timeline work. So, so here's, <laughs> I'll try to keep this fairly concise. So I moved to New York City with surgery. Um, everybody discovers the joys of the Lower East Side and, and heroin. And, uh, and I get a call from Chris Goss saying, Masters have split up. We have been signed by Delicious Vinyl. Delicious Vinyl. The Tone Look. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's Tone Look and Young MC. These guys, the Dust Brothers, Mike Ross and Matt Dyke. Uh, two genius guys. Matt, I think, just died last month. Um, who had worked on Price Boutique yeah. and uh, so. Beastie Boys and just genius uh, record makers. And they were huge fans of Masters of Reality. And they couldn't figure out why this band hadn't, you know, gone gigundo because they thought the record had a lot of hits on it. So they did the pretty uncommon move of buying out the contract and the record from Rick Rubin. And the band had split up somewhat acrimoniously while they were on tour, I think, with King's X, and split into two halves, Chris and Gooch, the bass player in one half, and Tim and Vinny, the drummer and the guitarist, or guitarist and drummer in the other half. And Delicious signed both halves. One half got to keep the name, the other half came up with a new name. And the half of the name was Chris's half. Um, so Chris called me and said, hey, we've been signed by a delicious vinyl. Um, you want to come out and see what it's like playing drums and play some music? Um, 
And I said, yes, I do. So I got on a plane and flew out to L.A. And, uh, and it was awesome. Chris was living in Hollywood, and I lived with him and his amazing wife, Cynthia. And um, we became a cool little nuclear family, and we started playing music together, and it was good. We had a good chemistry. Um, first thing we did when I got off the plane was be in a Steven Seagal movie. Called March for Death. I meant to look that up, but were you yeah. guys were were you guys in it as a band? Yeah, yeah. we're like a band playing in a bar. It's <laughs> just hysterical. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I still get small checks. Um, you really? Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. It's it's pretty awesome. Rockonomics just paid off. Yeah. So so I left I left surgery to be in a band that I really loved um, uh, in Hollywood, and it was a hot band. You know, it was a cool band um, signed to the coolest label. So all of a sudden, I'd really elevated my situation. And I'd sort of escaped uh, a situation that I, I was a little bit uh, wary of, right. with the direction the band was going. Um, so I was doing that for about, I guess, a year, year and a half. We spent a lot of time auditioning guitarists, every guitarist in L.A. Um, some amazing, some less so, but there was a lot of time spent working up new material and trying to find the right guy to be the guitarist in the band. And doing some shows, um, but we went to a party in Beverly Hills at some manager's house, and Ginger Baker was there. And, uh, and you know, I was like, holy shit, it's Ginger Baker. This is the Notorious cool. Ginger Baker. Yeah. <laughs> I was there with um, Daniel Ray, who was a guitarist that we had settled on who was a great guy who had produced a couple of Ramones records and, uh, you know, really talented producer and guitarist. And we decided we'd walk over and say hello to Ginger Baker, you know. Like, hey, Ginger, we're Masters of Reality. And he looked at us and he said something like, you know, Masters of Reality, fuck off. Like, (laughs) wow, it really is Ginger Baker. Um... And, you know, we're sort of thrilled to get cussed out by Ginger Baker. Well, he didn't uh, disappoint. A couple, a couple of days later, um, Ginger's manager calls and says, Ginger listened to your record and really likes it. He wants to, uh, he wants to, he wants to jam. I'm like, wow. Oh, my God. This is amazing. It's like Jimmy Page wants to jam. So we went down to SIR, and I helped Ginger set up his, his huge Ludwig drum set, and they jammed for a few hours, and it was good. You know, he's Ginger Baker. It was cool. Um, How did he treat you then after? He, tried, he always treated me fine. I mean, I only interacted with him uh, three times, once at that party, once at the jam, where he was very cool. Uh, I thought the jam was good, um, but I didn't feel threatened at the time because I was like 22, and he was 52, and, and I was a young buck, and I felt... Very sure of my gig. Um, And it was cool, and then I helped him break down the kit, and then everybody was on cloud nine because they had just jammed with one of the legends of rock. And uh, and the chemistry was good between them. Um, Then he invited us to his birthday party. And uh, I had a girlfriend at the time who was a little bit crazy, and the night before, we had been out all night uh, doing bad things. And the day of the party, I felt about as bad as I've ever felt physically on planet Earth. And my goal was to get to this party, which I figured would be full of, you know, Hollywood rock types. And I could just find some quiet corner, maybe an unused bedroom, and just sleep for a couple of hours. This, this was my plan. So we get in the car and we drive out to the desert. And uh, out desert outside of L.A., the houses become fewer and fewer. And then finally we see a little house perched 
in the middle of two hills, and it turns out to be Ginger's house. And we get there, and there's Ginger and his wife and his son and us and Greg Bissonette. No way. Yeah. <laughs> so, and we're figuring, I'm like, where's everybody? And Ginger's um, drinking red wine, and I think he'd had a few, and his mouth was all sort of red. And uh, he goes out to the barn and pulls out this cream drum set, you know, like the Disraeli gears. I mean, it says Ginger and Baker on the bass drum heads, and he sets it up on his patio, dusts like hay off of it, and sets it up on his patio and plays his birthday drum solo. And it's, it's great, you know. It's, it's Ginger Baker drum solo. It's good. Then his son, Kofi, who's a really good drummer, yeah. gets up and plays. And it's pretty damn amazing. And then Greg Bissonette gets up and proceeds to peel the bark off of every tree for five square miles with just like a solo of blinding technical proficiency <laughs> and intensity. It's just like, holy Jesus. And then okay, John. everybody turns around. <laughs> so it's my turn to play a drum solo. And uh, I have to get up behind Ginger's kit. And and uh, and I'm looking out over his flat toms at the band and Ginger and Greg Bissonette. And Daniel leans over and says to me, how are you feeling? I remember I said, like, I'm going to die. And then I played my drum solo. And it was fine. I actually, I reached deep and uh, I, thought I, I thought I handled it very well. Everybody had nice things to say. I'm I'm envisioning this is a movie. I mean, each each story you're telling me is like there's there's some good scenes. Yeah. So, so we leave eventually, and um, we're on tour with uh, Mission UK. Remember Mission? Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Wayne Hussey, Sisters of Mercy kind of thing. We played this gig with them in Ventura, and. we were opening, and I've always had trouble. I always did, anyway. I had trouble with my kick drum moving around when I was playing it. So I used to nail it to the stage, or I put two, I drive two nails in mm-hmm. the stage in the front. And uh, we did this gig at a theater in Ventura, and then they would come out with lots of smoke and caftans and sort of psychedelia, you know. And we had forgotten to take one of the uh, nails out, or somebody had taken the drum and not pulled all the nails out. So Wayne Hussey stepped. One of the nails from my kick drum went through his foot. Getting a show. That was kind of a bright spot. Of that. But later, after that show, I came out of the shower and everybody was in the room and they told me that Ginger wanted to join the band. So uh, I was stunned. I was just like, what? Okay. Yeah, that's I, so odd. I, well, I, I thought <laughs> I, I, could see, um, I could see why they wanted to do it. Um, and I had to respect that. But I didn't think it would work, you know. The the style of music they were playing was very different from the left-foot-driven style of music that he had been doing, or style of drumming that he'd been doing. Um, But, yeah, they they sent me back. They said, you know, he wants to join the band, and we feel like we can't not do this. Right. So I got it. I got on a plane and flew back to New York and moved in with my ex-girlfriend. I crashed at her place and um, was really bummed because, you know, I went overnight from being in a hot band in L.A. to crashing on my ex-girlfriend's couch. Um, kind of starting over. But I did. I ended up rejoining surgery within, I don't know, a month or two. And then we got signed to Atlantic. And I stayed friends with uh, Chris from the Masters. I mean, uh, we hooked back up again. Right. In 98, he called me 
Um, after Sean died from surgery, I kind of got out of music for a minute. I just didn't really want to. Uh, I'd been a little bit burned by it um, personally and just sort of business, the business side of it, it kind of bummed me out. So it was that point that I bought a computer and learned how to use a computer, how to make art using a computer. As a fine artist, I'd been really opposed to any computer aid. I thought it was cheating and all that jazz. Um, and I found that uh, the computer facilitated my decision-making process in a way that traditional work never could. You know, if you're an oil painter, you'll, you'll agonize over a change you make to a painting forever because it's hard to go back. Right. You can't really fuck it up. So you tape stuff up and you walk around for a couple of days and you smoke cigarettes and you think about it. But with the computer, you know, have to never have to commit. So you can try a thousand things and the more decisions that you make or more things you try, the better your decision-making acumen gets. And so I really got turned on by that. So I went, uh, I had to support myself post-surgery. So I, I learned to work with a computer and started being a freelance designer and then an animator and then a 3D guy and then a creative director. Um, but Chris Goss called me again in like 98, said, hey, you know, Masters have never toured Europe and there's a demand for us. Do you want to maybe go and tour Europe? And I said, sure. You know, because it, part of it for me is also about closing that circle. I felt right. bad about that. You know, I'd been kicked out. I'd never been kicked out of a band before. Um, so I wanted to just do it, just to do it. Were you free to do so at the time or did you have to leave a job to do it? No, I never took a staff job okay. ever. I was always freelance. Um, at that point, I mean, I, I did end up taking a staff job. Um, I became a creative director at a shop called Spontaneous for like almost 10 years. Um, but I was in Master's Reality at that point already, and the contracts that I did with them, I had built in some leeway for right. me to go on tour. And, uh, and they were they accommodated that. So, so I went and did a tour with Chris. Um, and other guys that we got to play uh, bass and the other guitar. And it was great. It was super fun. The crowds were amazing. And we got a record deal, and Chris and I made uh, our first record together right after that. Um, and that's basically how we did it uh, up until pretty recently. We would uh, get together every year or two out in the desert and write and record a record. And this goes back to when you mentioned the desert, um... You know, there's a bit of crossover because Chris also produced Caius' early stuff. Yeah. You know, that's Josh Homme and, mm -hmm. um, what's his name, Nick Oliveri. Nick Oliveri, yeah. So you got, that was a whole, you guys kind of, you know, got it, they adopted you into that scene or the, into the... Well, or just the, kind, these of the just, other, kind of the other adopted me or Masters. I mean, it, it was uh, when, when Chris met Josh and Nick, they were in high school. Or it's just, it's happening. No one adopted anybody. That was the scene that was yeah, Masters there, there was, It's interesting. I mean, I don't... It, there's a whole definition of what the desert scene is. Um, and I guess there's some geographic um, commonalities between those bands. But Caius, or Sons of Caius, as they were called when I first met them, you know, they were, they were in high school. And if anyone defined or or created a template for what the desert ended up sounding like. It was Chris who um, found these guys, uh, recognized how awesome they were, uh, but maybe most importantly, knew how to treat their sound and not crap it up 
right. the way that producers of the day were doing left and right. Mm-hmm. You know, he was willing to let them be sort of woolly and low-endy and uh, powerful in the way that, you know, maybe early Sabbath had been. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that Chris at the time was living in uh, Palm Springs or Palm Desert. Um, and it wasn't until uh, some years later that he moved to Joshua Tree, which has kind of become more the epicenter of the desert sound right. these days. Now, is that studio, what, Rancho de Luna, is that the studio that most everybody uh, records at? I mean, is that where uh, Queens and... Queens don't... I mean, Queens have recorded there, for sure. Uh, Rancho de la Luna is uh, run by a dear friend, Dave Catching. It was founded by Dave and a guy named Fred Drake um, in the 80s. Uh, they were in a band together called Earthlings. Uh, amazing, great, great, great band. Earthlings um, also had uh, Pete Stahl singing, who uh, had been in Scream in Washington, D.C. with Dave Grohl and was in a band called Wool for a while on, I think, London Records that Surgery toured with. And he's an incredible, incredible singer. So that was Earthling's studio. Um, and it's an old house, you know, off the up a dirt road, right. off of the only highway through Joshua Tree. And uh, it's just an amazingly cool place, really kind of secluded and just... Uh, Unique vibe. So, um, in the beginning, we didn't really record there. Masters didn't record there. Um, we recorded our first record that I did with Chris at a, a place called Monkey Studios, which was a studio that Chris co-owned in somewhere in Palm, Palm Springs. The second record we tracked uh, in a rented house um, outside of the Joshua Tree National Park. It was one of the first Pro Tools records. We tracked the drums at, uh, at a studio in Van Nuys, near, next to Sound City, I think. Um, but we recorded all the, dr- all the guitars and vocals in this rented house. Um, it wasn't until later that we, started to, that we made a record at Rancho, the Deep in the Hole record. Not the Deep in the Hole record, I'm sorry, the... Uh, Pine crossed over record. But in the meantime, Josh Homme started to make these desert session records where he would just invite the musicians that he admired and have them come out for a couple weeks and they would make up songs and record them mm-hmm. at the rancho. So Rancho started to get a reputation as a, uh, a cool place to record and maybe more importantly, a, a really cool vibe. And so, and as Josh's fame grew, uh, more, more people knew about it and he started to take whatever side projects that he was doing that weren't that. Uh, there, it would seem. So he did, I think he did an Arctic Monkeys record there yeah. and did an Iggy Pop record there. I think um, Foo Fighters featured it in their All right, Sonic Highways thing. Yeah. Um, but it's not like, you know, going to Ardent Studios or Sound City. It's not a place with a big tape room or tons of gear. It's right. just a, a house that you can make music in and record it. But um, it's more about the place than the stuff okay I think I think I have a particular interest in it because I've seen a couple of artists around Charlotte have I think have worked there so I feel like I, and maybe it's the Sound City uh, um, or Sonic Highways I feel like I've seen it like it is a house you know it's very cramped it's 
not very yeah. cramped, but it's yeah, it's know, not big. It's not you know. It's um, I just finished the logo for it like a week or two ago. It's it's a house, yeah. you know. It's a ranch house, really cool designed ranch house. Mm-hmm. But it's not like there's ten bedrooms. You know, there's the biggest room. It's got the drum kit and the amps in it, and um, it's just a great hang, yeah. basically. Um, so. How would you describe, it seems like Masters Reality, like, people are starting to catch catch on. You know, I mean, now you're part of, like, you know, since being, you know, rejoining, when was that, 1999, 1998? Yeah. I mean, you and Chris are pretty much the nucleus of the band, as it seems right now. I'm the only, uh, I guess I'm the only... Consistent. Consistent member besides him for the last 15 or so years. I mean, look, Masters of Reality is Chris. It, it right. always, you know, there is no Masters of Reality without him. And um, I have been, uh, you know, I've been eager to, to participate and support that and, and uh, add whatever musical dexterity I have to it. Um, but it's Chris. You know, it's his voice, it's his songwriting, and while I've collaborated on songwriting and, and uh, you know, played various things, it's it's his baby. Um, but yeah, I've managed to be in it longer than anyone else has, for sure. Are there any plans? I mean, I were there reissues recently, or in the last four or five years? I there, there was a... Bongload Records put out a deluxe vinyl. Yeah, actually, a couple things happened. Bongload, um, which is a sort of boutique vinyl label out of Las Vegas, reissued the album Deep in the Hole on a nice vinyl reissue, a colored vinyl, and I redesigned the cover, and um, that was cool. And Delicious Vinyl uh, re-released the first record uh, in a deluxe packaging, restored the original album artwork on the gatefold. It's pretty funny. When Delicious Vinyl bought the record and re-put it out, they did not use the cover that I had painted. They didn't? No, they, they put out this shitty <laughs> this shitty cover that had a bunch of things sort of jigsawed together. It was a bummer. Um, and I guess people said, what the fuck? So they, when they put it out, they restored it the way that the original one was. Which is cool. So they reissued that, and uh, we did a couple little shows to promote that. Um, but as for plans right now, there's nothing. There's nothing on the on the stove right. that I'm aware of. Um, it's been, I guess, since yeah, 2013, maybe yeah, 2013 since we've played any shows. All right. So I wrap up every show with the same five questions that everybody gets. So let's let's go there. Let's do it. First question is, uh, what musical artifact? Would you take to your grave? Huh. Artifact, like an object? Yeah. What what material possession that you've come across over the years? Mm, has, has to be small enough to fit in a grave. Back. Huh? Well, the grave, I just added the grave part to give it the importance. <laughs> you know, I, I could say that drum kit did save my life, but I'd probably choose this... Uh, Martin guitar that my dad gave me. Did he play? He didn't. And in fact, my dad was largely disinterested in uh, in my music um, 
for most of my life, uh, kind of dismissive of drums and my rock bands. And what parent, you know, I mean, if you were a parent of a kid in surgery, you might feel similarly, <laughs> similarly disenchanted with it. But um, everything about that name helps. Yeah, it, helps it was not name. a parent's friend <laughs> that band, but. Uh, but he heard me playing guitar one day and uh, finger-picking and doing stuff, and he came to the conclusion that, oh, well, maybe he is a musician. So for Christmas that year, he bought me a brand-new Martin um, herringbone you know, guitar, a beautiful classic Martin uh, HD28 guitar, which I was blown away by. It was the nicest thing he ever gave me. And uh, that's a nice guitar. guitar. He must have, yeah, must have done his research. Yeah, yeah, it's a <laughs> fantastic guitar. It's one of the best. So I'd probably take that. Okay, that raises another question. This isn't part of the five, but did you ever get endorse, endorsements with uh, drums? Uh, yeah, yes and no. It's funny. At the time that I was uh, on Atlantic, I did not get a drum endorsement, but I got a cymbal endorsement from Sabian. Um, which was cool. I went to the factory and picked out cymbals. And Sabian was, was run uh, by a guy named Bill Zildjian. Did you know that? I did not. Sabian is Zildjian. <laughs> like, they they split down the middle. In was it an acrimonious a lawsuit? Family it was rivalry. A family thing? rivalry. Well, I didn't thing. know that. Wow. Yeah, so they split the, the Zildjian factories in half and the formulas or whatever. And one side kept it. It sounded like a Masters Reality thing. And uh, Sabian is the first two letters from Bill Zildjian's kids' names. So, like, Sally, Billy, and Ann. And that's why it's called Sabian. Isn't that weird? Um, so I had a, a deal with Sabian. They were really good to me and gave me whatever I wanted. And um, It's funny. I got, a, I got interviewed by a modern drummer once, and I'll try to keep this story short. Sorry. But uh, I was on the road with surgery, and uh, I was in Seattle playing a club called the uh, Off-Ramp. It was called that because it was down the street from an off-ramp, right? Um, went almost right over the club, and we had just played a show, and I was outside smoking with Greg Dooley from the Afghan Wigs, and a fight broke out and um, between, like, a homeless guy and, like, a Seattle Rock kid. And it moved down until it was underneath the overpass, about 50 yards away, and there was a big crowd there watching it, so we walked over there, and as we got there, the homeless guy grabbed the kid by the head and bit his nose off. Ugh. Like, clean off his head. Which was shocking to everybody watching this. And uh, and that was the end of the fight. You know, that's a fight ender. And uh, the, the guy who bit the nose off pew, escaped into the night. And the other guy, now the Skeletor-like jet coming out of his face, you know, starts screaming, find my nose to everybody. And we're all freaked out enough to start doing it. And we look down and this overpass, because it's because it's a highway overpass, underneath it is the kind of place that people would throw their garbage, you know, so there were little couches and boxes, and, and somebody had busted open a whole bag of these styrofoam packing peanuts, like hundreds of them, and they were all dirty, and it fucking looked like thousands of noses. <laughs> like, it was like, just like trying to find a nose in a nose stack. I couldn't believe it was happening, and I gave up after a minute. Then I looked down, and it was right in front of my foot. And I yelled over, dude, got your nose. And they came over and, and put it in a Slurpee cup and, and off he went. No cops or ambulances showed up during the entire time. But I had become instantly like a minor celebrity. Like, this guy found the nose. You know, went back in the bar and he shots and stuff. And Anyway, I do a phone interview with Modern Drummer the next day. 
and uh, and I'm psyched because I grew up reading Modern Drummer, and I've never been in a drum magazine, and you know, and because this thing had happened the previous night, I told the guy that story, and then the article comes out like six months later, and by the time the article comes out, uh, Sean is dead, the band is broken up, deal's gone, everything has just gone to hell, and, uh, and my mom. My mom uh, goes out and buys 20 copies of this magazine to give to grandma and everybody. And, you know, the article is almost entirely, note for word for word, my grisly nose story. And it's like, oh, and he, he's good at drums. The end. You know? <laughs> so it's like, um, but, um, God, what was I talking about? Uh, yeah, Bill Zildjian called me to congratulate me on the article coming out. I was like, oh, my God, I mean, I called from Bill Zildjian. And then I had to break it to him. Yeah, Sean died. The band's over. Uh, it came out a long time. You know, the band ended three months before the article even came out. But thanks for calling. <laughs> it was a bummer. I felt bad. But yeah, so I had Promark sticks, Sabian cymbals, and um, then that was it. No drum companies gave me a deal, although we didn't really shop for one. But I kind of have one now um, with Sonar mm -hmm. uh, drums, who I hooked up with through Samantha Maloney, who... Uh, managed masters for a minute and she's a great drummer who uh, was in Hole I think and Motley Crue well Tommy Lee was out and she's a sonar endorser for a long time yeah. so she hooked me up with them and they started giving me uh, kits to tour with so if we went to Europe instead of having to rent a kit for the tour sonar would just give me a kit which was awesome That's because cool. those drums are amazing um, the, the best made drums in the world so that was cool, and I just I did a project with them last year. Or out of blue, out of the blue, Thomas Barth, their head of artist relations, asked me if I would do some design work for them. Oh, that's for cool. their SQ2 line, which is like their most expensive Maserati customizable drum line, and they wanted me to design a a poster that showed all of the myriad of options available to the discerning chooser of drum components. So I did, and you know we we traded, you know. I said, okay, I'll do it. Uh, just trade me drums. Right? So I got to design any drum kit I wanted, and they shipped it to me on okay. a shipping pallet. And it's a drum set I would never in a million years buy. <laughs> I could never afford it, you know. Um, but I got it. It's amazing. It's awesome. Yeah. Fucking A. Yeah. Um, These are right. longer answers than you That's want. That's all right. I was just <laughs> question number two. <laughs> yeah. This goes back to a, a, a small economics thing, but if I were to give you a million dollars to give to a charity, one charity, who gets it? <sighs> wow. Charity. You know, I think uh, I would give that money to veterans, uh, servicemen and women. That's fair enough. That's where they cause. Yeah. It's amazing what uh, servicemen and women do. And uh, often it's just not recognized the way they should be. Very true. Um, all right, the bring the house back up a bit. Number three is uh, what would your walk-up music be to the pearly gates? It's really hard because it's it's defining yourself in the entirety of your fucking life with <laughs> one piece of music, which I don't think I could ever do. Um, hmm. Want to pass? Yeah. The next question is yeah, easy. I'm going to pass hard on that. All right. Question four. What is stuck on repeat in hell? Oh. 
A song or like a playlist? Uh, Usually a song, but... I'll tell you what. There's one piece of music that drives me nuts, and it's a local commercial for Cars for Kids. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, you're the second one who said that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That might be on repeat in hell. If, uh, for sure. If yeah. <laughs> okay, last question is uh, best concert that you've seen. Or Boy. just been privy to. Best live performance, let's put it that way. You've been... Yeah, so many. For different reasons, you know. Um, that's really tough. What was your first show? What was your first concert that you kind of you wanted to go to, you sought out? And... My first concert was Rush on the Moving Pictures Tour. Um, that's brilliant. My dad waited <laughs> in the parking lot. And that was amazing. Um, man, I can't, I can't pick the best concert I ever went to. I, I honestly can't. I mean, I have tons of concerts that were amazing, but is there one that was better than all the others? No. Um, you know, some of the concerts, some of the performances that, you know, stick out are the ones that maybe no one else would remember, or maybe they're just incredible for five or ten minutes. You know, sometimes you see a band, and you know for a little period of time that you're seeing the best thing on planet Earth right, right now. There's nothing better than this song, maybe. Maybe it's just a song, or maybe it's just the bridge of a song, but when it happens, you know it has happened. Um, and there's been a bunch of those. I mean, that's kind of the goal is to hope you get to experience that as much as possible. Um, and there's no feeling quite like doing it yourself or trying to do it yourself, trying right. to trying to transcend. Um, you know, I think music and musicians, or me, for me anyway, the goal of playing music is to try to leave, to try to leave the room. You know, to try to transcend, to mm -hmm. to literally lift off from the, the, you know, the sort of tangible reality of what you're doing. You know, putting your fingers and hands on this thing, and and through interacting with other people and, and an audience, even um, elevate somehow right. that is not quantifiable mm -hmm. or understandable exactly. That sort of sublime. I wish I had a better answer for best concert uh, walk-up music, but I don't really. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, listen, after 29 years, it was great, uh, <laughs> it was great catching up. Yeah, man. I appreciate you doing this. All right. A big thanks to John Leamy. It was a pleasure reconnecting with John after many, many years. As implied, John and I went to Syracuse University together. And I can tell you firsthand what an amazing fine artist he is, as well as musician. I'll post some of his artwork on social media this week to prove my point, so follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And as always, subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We'll be back next Tuesday with an all-new episode that should please any fish fans out there, so please join us then. That's it for episode 25. It's over. Go home. Good night, Cleveland. <laughs>